Welcome to the Thesis Theater. Uh, I'm Chris Swank, and we're here for Thesis Theater, where new graduates present their thesis research. Tonight, we're happy to be talking with recent graduate, Emily Denny. Wave hi, Emily. <laughs> and her thesis director, daughter, Dr. Peter Skackel. And recent graduate, Lola Lindell. And you guys can wave hi. I'm Chris Swank. I'm a Signum graduate and also now a member of the Signum faculty, and I'm proud to have been Lola's thesis director. How are you all tonight? We're good, how are you? Well, very good. good, you all sound good, you sound good. Before we get started, I just wanna mention that as we come to you this evening, Signum University is in the middle of their annual fund drive. Your generous contributions help us to continue to offer these great events as well as accessible education for a low, low price. If you're interested in making a donation or perusing the fun gifts that you give for making a donation or for signing up for other special campaign events like this one, just visit signumuniversity.org slash fund, F-U-N-D, signumuniversity.org slash fund. Tomorrow, for instance, September 29th, Dr. Corey Olson will take his annual stroll through Middle Earth the Lotro Marathon, Wigand goes to Gondor, and that begins at noon Eastern time. And I'll be back as a guest panelist on October 11th with Kat, Sass, and Curtis Wayans Mythgard Movie Club. Together with Corey Olson, we'll be discussing the 1935 movie, She, based on the novel by H. Ryder Haggard. That starts at 8.30. So for more information and to sign up for those events and more, go to signumuniversity.org fund that's the end of the advertising. Now I'd like to introduce our panelists a little bit in detail. Uh, Lola Lindell is a fiction author and active in theater, film, and writing groups in Seattle, Washington. She's been reading Harry Potter since the release of The Prisoner of Azkaban, and has become it's become a big part of her readerly life. The Harry Potter audiobooks read by Jim Dale even cured her of chronic insomnia. Now she gets to share her in-depth analysis with people who appreciate it. Welcome, Lola. Thank you. Lola's thesis is entitled The Crux of the Horcrux, How Rereading Transfigures Potter Perceptions. And Lola and I will return in about 20 minutes. But right now, I'd like to turn things over to Emily Denny and Dr. Skakel. Emily Denny is a middle school language arts teacher in Noblesville West Middle School in Noblesville, Indiana. Did I pronounce that right? Yes. Very good. She completed her bachelor's degree in education at Indiana University East. Her love for the works of C.S. Lewis began in the third grade when her teacher read The Chronicles of Narnia to her class. I think that was about the time I was read that too. Emily's thesis uses the work of American author and spiritual writer and Franciscan friar Richard Rohr as an interpretive lens for C.S. Lewis's beautiful novel, Till We Have Faces. Welcome, Emily. Thank you. And Emily's thesis director, Dr. Peter Skackel, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yes. Taught English at Hope College from 1969 to 2017. That's most of my life, Dr. Skackel. <laughs> including, <laughs> <laughs> including many courses on C.S. Lewis. He wrote or edited seven books on Lewis. Most recently, The Way Into Narnia, A Reader's Guide was published in 2005 and Is Your Lord Large Enough? 
was published in 2008. Welcome to both of you. I'm gonna be monitoring the questions box and after about 20 minutes, I'll come back. Anybody who's typed questions in the questions box at that time, I'll read those out for Emily and Dr. Skackle. But for now, I'm gonna turn it over to you and Lola and I are going to disappear for a bit. All right, enjoy. There they go. Uh, Emily, um, um, why did you choose Lewis as a subject for your thesis? Well, I have obviously loved um, reading Lewis's work since I was a child. Um, as I grew up, I started reading more of his more adult fiction and also his nonfiction. And the thing that I really love about Lewis is that he's an author who um, makes me think and really challenges the way that I see the world. Mm -hmm. He's done that for me too. That's, that's wonderful. Um, why did you choose Till We Have Faces? Well, I read it on my own several years ago, and the first time I read it, I enjoyed it, but my first thought was, this book's a little odd. And then when I took the Lewis and Tolkien class um, here at Signum um, with Professor Olson, that's really when I fell in love with it. Um, just going through that with my classmates and listening to the lectures just helped me to see the depth of it. But I wasn't completely happy with my understanding and with my interpretation of several aspects of the novel. So I thought it'd be fun to kind of dig into it a little bit more and hopefully come to a better understanding. Oh, great. Um, tell us about Richard Rohr. Uh, who is he personally? Who is he professionally? Um, how did you, uh, how did you get, get to know about Richard Rohr? He is a Franciscan. Franciscan priest. He uh, lives and works in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He is the founding director of the Center for Action and Contemplation. And I was first introduced to him from my friend Patrick, who also happens to be my pastor. Um, he posted a video, a link to a video on Facebook. Um, no, it was a link to a, a podcast on Facebook that was interviewing Richard Rohr. And in that interview, he was talking about the three boxes and it was something I was interested in and had the opportunity to talk to uh, Patrick with. Okay. Um, what about the three boxes? What, what are the three, three boxes? Um, what are they, um, what, what did the, what did you, uh, where were you in starting with them? The three boxes are a pattern that Rohr has noticed um, within the Bible, but also within the lives of the people that he, he's worked with and he's served. And the first box is called order. And order is the ideal way to begin life. It's this basic sense of reality, a basic definition of the way life works that says life is good, God is good and it's good to be alive. And it helps to build a healthy sense of self and for an individual to feel at peace in the world. Um, it's a great place to start, but not a great place to finish. And um, the reason is that order creates this dualistic kind of thinking and either or mentality that can't account for all the shades of gray that we face in reality. And then the second box is disorder. This is the stage that people enter when they're faced in a situation, when they're facing a situation they can't control or understand. And when that situation happens, they have two options. They can either stubbornly cling to their idea of, or, of order, or they can enter into the second box of disorder. And the second box of disorder is not a fun place to be um, because it's characterized by a feeling of loss of control, powerless, 
vulnerability, it really forces you to confront long-held beliefs that you've cherished. And um, that can be very difficult, um, very difficult to do. But it's important also to note that not everyone begins in order. Um, some people begin in the second box of disorder. Um, Vohr found that many of those people would often try to find some sense of order or structure so that they can make sense of the world and gain a sense of identity. But ideally, after going through order and going through disorder, the third box is reorder. And this is the stage where people are moving away from dualistic thinking. Um, they become comfortable with paradox, mystery, and even suffering, able to accept that life holds both joy and sorrow. Um, another important thing to note is that individuals can go back and forth between the different boxes. But as Roar says, uh, there is no direct flight between order and reorder. You do have to go through disorder to find reorder. Did you immediately see a connection with of these three boxes to Till We Have Faces? Not at all. Um, I was doing the research for my thesis for the original idea that I had, and I was reading Kath Filmer's book, The Fiction of C.S. Lewis. And in it, she um, has this interpretation of the ending that Orwell has this, she deserves a much better ending than what she got and that she ends her life in tatters. And when I read that, my first thought was, I don't really agree with that. And as I was thinking about it, I came to realize that um, the Richard Rohr's three boxes kind of helps to explain the way that I saw that, that Orwell doesn't end her life in tatters, she ends her life in the box of reorder. She's able to be comfortable with mystery and paradox. Um, and that's where she ends, not in a horrible ending, but a rather a bittersweet one. Okay. Um, what, what connection do you see then between the three boxes and Orwell? Well, as I mentioned before, not everyone starts in the box of order. Orwell is an individual who enters life into the second box of disorder. We see that in her relationship with her father. He's very abusive. Um, because she's ugly, he doesn't see any value in, in her because he can't gain anything from marrying her off to a neighboring uh, prince. Um, then when the fox arrives, he even says to her that you better teach her to be wise. That's all she's ever going to be good for. Um, also, she, um, her country is in a state of disorder. Gloam is ruled by a reckless king and it's in a state of poverty. So she's really in this beginning the story and beginning her childhood in a state of disorder instead of in order. Okay, if she starts in the second box, where does the story go from there? Well, because of the unpredictability in her home life and in her country or in her country, she's looking for that sense of order and that's, she finds it in relationships and in religion. Um, she finds it in her relationships with the fox and with Psyche because when the fox shows up, she finally has someone who's showing her love. And then when Psyche is born, she finally has someone that she can give love to. Um, interestingly, in her idea of religious order, there's some tension there. Um, there's this conflict between what she grew up with, with the cult of Ungat, and the fox's Greek wisdom that he brings with him. Um, Ungat, she's a very mysterious goddess. Um, her experiences in the worship of Ungat is that the gods are cold and cruel and punitive. With stoicism that the, the fox brings with him, 
Um, he says to her that Unga and the gods, they're just lies of poets, lies of poets, child. Um, he looks to nature and to logic, what is rational and what is observable. And so she's caught in between these two different strands of religion. And what we find is that originally, it's the cult of Ungat that's the clear winner. Um, she says that she's a child of Gloam and a pupil of the fox. But as Doris Myers points out in her work, Orwell's just trying to please the fox by adopting his ideas. She's parroting his ideas and parroting his thoughts, but she really truly believes in the cult of Ungat and really truly sees Ungat as this cruel, cruel goddess. So her original idea of reality is more like Ungat than like the fox's Greek wisdom. Okay, she's found order through relationship and religion. Um, what's the problem? Where does, what does she still need to do? Well, her view of the gods is a little off. And she finds this when she talks to her sister, Psyche. Um, she goes and she finds that Psyche is still alive after she has been sacrificed. And this is an opportunity for Orwell to enter into disorder and reevaluate her beliefs, but she refuses. Um, she hears Psyche's story about the God of the mountain and how loving he is. And she finds herself jealous of him because Psyche now has this relationship outside of Orwell. And so rejecting the truth of Psyche's story, feeling like she's mad, it's her way of maybe getting her sister back. If it's really not true, she can have this relationship back that really helped provide her with that sense of order she really wanted as a child. Um, so overall, this refusal to enter, enter into disorder is a refusal to change, not just her view of the gods, but also to change the nature of her relationship with her sister. So she's stuck there for, for a long time. She's clinging yeah. onto order. Yes. What does she do to to re-enter disorder? Well, in part one, this is her clinging desperately to order. And then part two, after she's had a chance to rewrite some of her experiences, um, she goes and she revises her book. And that really forces her to deconstruct her past. So she hears the story from the priest of Psyche, which is what started that whole process. But she also remembers a conversation she had with a guy named Taryn, who knew her other sister, Redival. And he forces Orwell to realize that Redival is not the vain, conceited sister she thought, that Redival was really lonely, especially after Psyche was born. And Orwell shifted her love from Redival all to Psyche. And so that caused a lot of loneliness, which Orwell hadn't been able to see and hadn't even wanted to see previously. She's also then forced to reevaluate the love that she had for Bardia. Um, she visits Bardia's wife, Ansett, after he dies. And in that conversation, she's able to see that the love that she thought she had for Bardia really had turned to hatred. And that she was finally able to recognize that Bardia was caught between his love and loyalty for his queen and his love and loyalty to his wife. And then finally, she has to deconstruct her own identity. One of the, one of the things about the book that puzzled me um, before I started my thesis was the scene where her father, she has this vision of her father and he is having her descend through all of these different versions of the pillar room. And he sets her before this mirror and he says, what do you see? And she says, or I'm sorry, he says, who is Ungat? And she says, I am Ungat. And with deconstructing her own identity, um, 
we see that she's starting to see how she is like Unged. Doris Myers even calls her a psychological vampire, someone who feeds on what everyone has to give her without returning anything. And so she's able to see that she is like Unged in the sense that Orwell also devours and manipulates others. And all of these events are the things that finally help her enter into that third box of reorder. So we see that she's writing part two in her experiences of going through disorder and deconstructing her identity and having all of these visions. It helps her um, to gain a new view of the gods. So in her final words, Orwell states that God didn't answer her because he himself is the answer. And throughout the novel, she has been asking for these clear signs from the gods but misinterpreting the signs that they do give because they don't match her expectations. And so at the end, when she's saying that you yourself are the answer, Lord, we see she's comfortable with the mystery of the gods, whereas before she wanted those clear, rational explanations and answers. Okay. Um, it, is it fair to say that Roar's, that Roar's thought has enriched your experience with the novel? You, do you know it better? Can you explain yes. explain how your understanding of Tilly Hefeks has expanded? Um, it illuminates the theme of love that runs through the novel and also several of Lewis's other works. Um, it was a very important theme for him and many scholars have picked up on that and have talked about that. Um, but for me, the two major things would be clarifying important metaphors in the novel as well as the plot structure. Um, I mentioned I am Ungat as one of the metaphors that I hadn't quite gotten a satisfactory um, interpretation of. But the other one is you also are Psyche. And so we see her in this state of disorder, discovering that she is Unget, which becomes a metaphor for how both Unget and Orwell devour and manipulate the people they love for their own selfish gain. But with the metaphor of you also are Psyche, the first time she hears that is after she's convinced her sister to disobey her husband and look at him and she's sent into exile. And because Orwell's sense of religious order is that the gods are cruel, punitive, she's originally expecting some sort of punishment for her disbelief, but the punishment never comes. She thinks about how, hey, I could fall off my horse and die, or I could go into exile when my father dies, or I'm going to fight Argon and I probably will be killed by him, but none of these punishments ever come. And so the second time, she hears this is at the end when she's read her book to her to the judge and she's finally been reunited with her sister and the god comes and says you also are psyche and this it's mercy and it's grace it's a metaphor for her journey to reorder she's no longer selfish like unget she has been transformed into someone who's more psyche someone who's a beautiful soul and who is loved by the gods and therefore can give love to other people and one of the things that really helped me, um, that this really helps me to understand better is the structure of the novel. Um, an important um, source that I used in my thesis was Mara Donaldson's Holy Places Are Dark Places. And in it, she talks about how important it is to look at the structure of Till We Have Faces because C.S. Lewis tried different forms. He tried poem, he tried other different forms. And so the fact that this one worked is very important to look at. And she notes that Part one of the novel has a very clear plot structure, very clear sense of time, 
Part two, not so much. It's structurally more complex. Um, part two doesn't have a clear beginning, middle, or end. And there's not really a clear sense of time because she's going from one vision to another vision. And if we look at Rohr's paradigm, it fits that structure. In part one, she's desperately trying to get a sense of order. And so we have that order in the plot, plot structure and the sequence. So she's trying to impose order on her life and she's composing this narrative that she hopes will convince readers to side with her against the gods. Part two, very different. Her purpose is to revise her book, but she's telling about her experiences in a season of disorder. So the breakdown of linear time in part two emphasizes the deconstruction of Orwell's beliefs about herself and her past. She has to look at that narrative that she's just written and see where it's actually a false narrative. And a lot of things that she thought weren't actually true. So with this, that linear progression of time in part two is not what is important. What's important is that transformation that Orwell experiences as a result of embracing disorder and entering into reorder. Mm -hmm. That's good. That's good. Um, we've got about two or three minutes left. Uh, many C.S. Lewis scholars regard Till We Have Faces as Lewis's best imaginative work. Do you agree with them? If so, what what's what what makes it good? What's the what in what ways is it its his best? Um, absolutely, I agree. Um, as much as I love the Chronicles of Narnia and am very fond of them from my childhood. Um, this definitely is the one that I enjoy the most for many reasons because of its complexity. Complexity. Um, Orwell as a character is very well done. Um, he does a really good job. So Lewis does a really good job of presenting um, her psychological state, um, the plot structure. Now that I, you know, have used Roar's uh, paradigm to kind of understand that a little bit better is really fascinating. And with Till We Have Faces, it's one of those books that rewards rereading. And Lewis himself was all about how great the best books are the ones that reward rereading. And when you look at Till We Have Faces multiple times, the more I read it, the more I see the beauty in it, and the more, the more I understand it. And especially having read it kind of at different points in my life, I've been able to see new things in it every single time that I read it. Mm -hmm. That's great, that's great. Um, I think we're about out of time. I've really enjoyed working with you on the thesis and enjoyed listening to this summary of it. I think you you brought it, brought across what you what you had learned and what you enjoyed about the book very well. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Chris, I can't hear you. I can't either. How's that? Oh, there you ah, are. I can hear you loud, sure. loud and well, clear. Okay. Uh, all the lip readers could hear me. So that was good. Um, thank you. Um, I've got about three questions from the audience for you. That was really wonderful. Um, from Sharon, would you identify Orwell's education and rise to power? contributes to order or is it a mechanism to shift her into disorder? Mm, I hadn't thought of that. That's a really good question. Really good uh, question. Her education, it's like the fox is trying to get her um, to think about like stoicism and kind of to think about the gods in a new way. 
but she doesn't really do that. She still clings to her ideas of the the cult of Ungat, even though she's parroting what the po what the fox says. Probably not the best way I could have phrased that because now I'm gonna have the song in my head. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I hadn't really thought of that before. That's interesting. Um, Think on. Yeah, definitely. Okay, from Alexis, Orwell's fear of Ungat is that her fear of herself in her relationship with others? And does this work into the three boxes of understanding? Mm -hmm. Yes, because the whole metaphor, um, I also am Ungat, a lot of times, um, something that I didn't bring up um, that I mentioned briefly in my thesis is Rohr talks about the idea of having a shadow and that shadow are the parts of ourselves that we really don't want to see. And so I would imagine that that fear that she has is part of that fear of her own shadow. It's very Jungian and yes. Ursula mm -hmm. Le Guin also. Yes. That. That's great. Okay, and now from Patrick, I think you said that Orwell starts in Roar's second box of disorder in her life. I wonder if Orwell's life is just disorderly, not necessarily in a sense of disorder from her perspective. Is her disorderly life her normal? And if so, does she then not enter into Roar's second box until Fox provides a teaching that invites disorder by providing her with new ideas, thoughts, theologies, and teachings? Hmm. Um, hmm. Can you repeat that? Because there was a Absolutely. lot with that. <laughs> Absolutely. Good, good question, mm -hmm. Patrick. Okay. If Orwell starts in Roar's second box of disorder, is that just her normal? So that her disorder is just her, her normal. And if so, then does she not enter into Roar's second box until Fox provides a teaching that invites disorder by providing her with new ideas? It's really, it's really Taryn who um, kind of starts the, pro well, actually it's really the rewriting that starts the process because at the beginning of part two, she says that the gods used the, um, the writing to probe her own wound. And so it was, going through and just thinking through her past. And then Taryn was really the one who got her actually started thinking about, oh wait, the way I saw Redwall, completely different from what I thought. The, and then going to the experience with Ansett. So it's really more those relationships that she has with these people who help open her eyes to, wait, the way I saw the world is not the way I thought it was, which then allows her to start deconstructing her view of the gods. Um, as seen in the, um, the vision that she has, the fox even says, I taught her to believe these things, and I taught her to believe that everything was rational, and now I kind of understand a little bit better. So it's not all her fault, I kind of had a, a place in that. And she even has this reaction of, no, you loved me, you were, you were kind to me, you were good to me, you were loved me, and I didn't really appreciate it. I love what, uh, what you said, um, the gods use the writing to probe her wound. That's like C.S. Lewis's um, statement for all authors, isn't it? The writing mm -hmm. does, mm -hmm. yeah, the mm -hmm. writing does let authors probe their wound. Oh, well, that's just wonderful, Emily, and, and thank you, Dr. Skackle. I'm going to let you guys take a breather bring Lola on and then I'll bring you guys back at the uh, top of the hour, close to the top of the hour. All right. About five or six minutes before that. Okay, Lola, let's get you back. You can turn your camera on Lola. And unmute yourself and then I'm going to 
let Emily and Dr. Scaffel go. There, it's just the two of us. I don't have your microphone. That's really weird. Okay, there you go. Excellent. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> All sorts of fun technical difficulties tonight. All right, you have some slides to share with us, so I'm going to get those up on the screen. And just a quick type in the questions box if you guys can see that title slide. Yes, fantastic. Thank you so much. All right. So Lola, your thesis was about Harry Potter, which is a subject close to my heart. I guess that's why <laughs> I got to be your thesis director. Can you give me just a little mini overview of what your thesis was about? Yeah, of course. My thesis is regarding the theory of rereading and how it influences the effects and meanings within J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter series, uh, specifically how certain maligned characters such as the Dursleys, the Malfoys, and Creature are viewed by readers. Um, I focus on long-term effects of Horcruxes and the theory of rereading and in how the analysis of what happens to readers on their second or thirtieth reading or rereading of uh, texts. And, and that's particularly important in Harry Potter because we know the readers read it over and over and over again. I know I have. Right, must be getting something <laughs> out of it that's, that's worth going back all those times. Yeah. All right, so how did you come up with your idea? Well, my very first class at Signum was taking Harry seriously, the artistry and meanings of Harry Potter saga with Professor Amy Sturgis and I love the class, but I was the only person in my preceptor course, including the preceptor, who didn't hate on the Dursleys. And I, you know, I wanted to probe why that was. Why, what did I, what was I reading into the Dursleys that the others weren't seeing? Um, and, you know, if Harry wasn't a Horcrux, what would the Dursleys have been like? So that's, where the idea started. And then a few months later, I saw on Tumblr and Reddit and you know various meme sites that um, this idea was was coming up with the fans as well. But um, you know, Horcruxes, they just ruin everything, don't they? Right. They ruin friendships, minds, bodies, lives, souls, and perfectly good jewelry. Horcrux exposure can have harmful effects that grow steadily worse over time. That is, if you don't, the Horcrux doesn't kill you first. It can begin to influence your thoughts and degrade your willful willpower after only a few weeks. Oh, suck it up, Ronald. It will consume your mind and ravage your body over the course of a school year. Weasley children are highly susceptible to Horcrux possession, it would seem. That they are. Now imagine what kind of horrible, twisted, heartless monster a person would become after being exposed to a Horcrux for, let's say, 10 years they'd probably turn out to be pretty horrible people, which right. is absolutely true. Um, and because of all of these memes and, and things that I was seeing, I wanted to find critiques on this. I sought them out and looked for analyses about rereading and Harry Potter, and there was a distinct lack. And um, it made me feel like, why aren't these characters important to examine 
in the world of Harry Potter. And that kind of clinched my idea for me six years ago. And now here I am presenting on my, my current topic. Yeah, that was quite a journey. And I know that we um, started looking for scholarly materials and that was, um, that was kind of hard because like you said, you found these memes online, but as far as people taking a scholarly look at the effect of Horcruxes and so forth, here are some of the things that you read. Yep, there were many, 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 many sources that I that I looked at, and these are the ones with the pretty covers, or you know, covers at all. Um, and Chris and I scoured every Harry Potter critique for the mention of rereading, and the and anything that mentioned the Dursleys or the Malfoys or creature in a positive light at all. And you know, some of them I really enjoyed and some of them I really didn't. Um, but they all served to help get me here from where I started. Um, because as I was going through this process, it was really difficult to maintain, you know, a sense of security about my idea because it wasn't out there. Was it a good idea? Was it worth exploring? And the doubt and insecurities, you know, Chris helped me get over that because, you know, of course my idea is worth exploring. It's, of course it's worth uh, looking at. Um, but the doubt and insecurities are something that is part of Signum, unfortunately, because we're all isolated from each other. And so we don't get to see each other and share our, our ideas and support each other in that kind of way. I'm kind of thinking of Emily's uh, thesis and Richard Rohr's boxes. And you started with this idea and then it was this great idea and you're all keen on it. And then it just kind of all falls apart as you're not finding other scholars that are dealing with it. And, and you go through the doldrums, but then, you know, you end up with this fantastic thesis at the end, which you don't know if it's you're filling a gap um, that hasn't been written about is, is a, like you're jumping a leap of faith into a black hole, isn't it? Yeah. Definitely. Well, we started off with uh, with your idea, but you um, went on a journey. Here's here's <laughs> your version of your journey. Yeah. So you know, the, in the beginning, the idea was was very narrow, and um, Serena Higgins, the department chair, she helped helped me broaden my proposal so that it was something that we could think about in more than just uh, Harry Potter. Um, you know, how, how is this applicable to other stories in, in what we're looking at? And, you know, so at the beginning I wanted to, to go, to go big. And then, uh, as I was researching and drafting, it got to be too big, much too big. Um, and so Chris helps me find the funnel and narrow my topic down. And, you know, with each rewriting, with each drafting, with each conversation, it got a little more narrow and a little more manageable. But as I was nearing the end, um, it felt like I was never gonna finish. It felt like I had chosen my topic poorly and that it was just something that was never gonna see the light of day. Um, but as I was writing my final draft, uh, everything just kind of fell into place. And my final thesis actually ended up being the initial idea, only it was more complex and more informed based on all of the reading and the research that we had done together. That, the, the, you have a new theory now of the uh, four fish bowls. 
<laughs> you can put your stamp on that one, yeah. But that that really was pictorially exactly the the process that you did go through, and that a lot of people go through. You have this idea, and you try to pursue it, and uh, there are struggles, but uh, usually people end up with a beautiful thesis at the end, and you certainly did. All right, so tell me about this slide. Um, so rereading and how it serves to discern how J.K. Rowling uses the Horcruxes is the main part of my thesis. Um, and you can click for the animation. Uh, and how readers, it changes how readers view their characters. J.K. created a hidden flaw within her main character, Harry, that wasn't revealed to readers or to the character himself until the very end of the seventh book. Um, and it fundamentally changes the way that re-readers perceive Harry Potter um, and his actions and his interactions and other characters and how they interact with him. Uh, Rereading illuminates more than just the Horcruxes. The Dursleys are seen as awful people because that's the way they're portrayed, um, but they spend 10 full years with a Horcrux. And with a rereading, we see how the diminished contact with Harry affects the Dursleys. They're, there's a positive change. And in essence, when you think about it, Petunia welcomes into her house, begrudgingly or not, uh, a small part of her sister's killer when she brings Harry home. And so Voldemort lives with them. And so her, her guilt and her anger is intensified by all of the feelings that she had for her sister and all of the feelings that she has for Harry. And so Voldemort is definitely a part of their lives. Um, and, you know, again, how would their lives have been different if Harry hadn't been a Horcrux? Right. So when we get to um, the, the seventh book and you've got Ron and Hermione and Harry living out in the forest of Dean and all over and mm -hmm. the Horcrux that they're trying to destroy is really affecting um, particularly Ron, but also the other two as well. That's when you go back and look at the Dursleys, right? And you go, wow, a few months in the woods with the Horcrux makes Ron this crazy. What was 10 years like for the Dursleys? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's pretty brilliant. And you don't get that right until the end of the series. Yeah. All right, so who did we look at specifically? Uh, well, the three groups that were most affected were, one, the Dursleys, who live with Harry, the Horcrux. Uh, they're the most hated muggles of all, you know, Potterdom. And they may not have loved Harry, uh, but if he was not a Horcrux, they probably would have given him more than a tissue for Christmas. They probably wouldn't have locked him up in his room with no food, and they definitely wouldn't have put bars on his windows and a cat flap at his door um, because that's very out of character because they're very keeping up with the Joneses uh, and yet here they are putting bars on the outside of their house that none of the other neighbors have and are very noticeable you know it's so it's not it's it's not in character what they're doing with Harry and so how far out of their regular their regular norm are they living with a horcrux for 10 years um but 
as as they spend more and more time away from Harry, we see that they have an emotional turn or a cognitive shift, as it were. Um, each of them have moments where their views of Harry change for the, for the better. Um, and group two are the Malfoys, who live with Tom Riddle's diary for 11 or more years. We, we're not exactly sure how long they live with it. Um, you know, talk about a rock and a hard place. They initially choose to follow Voldemort because of his views on blood status. And, you know, once he's gone and once Lucius sends the Horcrux to Ginny's cauldron, you can see a change in them anytime they're mentioned. You know, they, they, now they live for each other. They live for their love for each other. Um, and when the Dark Lord returns, they can no longer stomach his brand of evil. And, you know, they, they each have moments where you can see that they're not on board with what's happening. You know, Draco is crying in the bathroom with moaning Myrtle because he doesn't want to kill Dumbledore. Um, you know, Lucius and Narcissa, they, they all end up leaving before the final battle because they can't, they can't risk losing each other when when it might happen because Voldemort would kill them anyway, because yeah. he sees them as being disrespectful. Um, sure. And the third group is Creature, um, who lives with Slytherin's Locket for probably 15 years or so. Um, and I would be crazy and spiteful too if I lived with, you know, an object of my failure for 15 years only getting negative reinforcement that would that would make me pretty pretty crazy and miserable um but when harry promises to finish that work to kill the horcrux and he gives um creature the gift of the the fake locket which belonged to his master his, his the only one he liked regulus mm -hmm. um there's an immediate change in creature he goes overnight from being this dirty cantankerous house elf to a clean happy and obedient servant and you know he even treats hermione with you know grudging respect so right and she's not they, a they, they each go through their own shift and um we can see the changes that affect them once their horcrux is gone from their from their lives and out of all the characters who have long-term exposure, the most dramatic change occurs between Harry and Dudley. I mean, Dudley has tormented Harry his entire life. He's chased him, he's beat him up, he's teased him, he's, you know, he's eaten his food, he's, you know, Harry's forced to wear his hand-me-downs, which are always much too large, but after the better part of four years of space, um, from Harry and um, after being attacked by Dementors and saved by Harry, the lessening impact of the, uh, the Horcrux starts to change him. And so, um, you know, he goes from being threatened by Harry in this picture to the handshake that changed it all, um, which is from the deleted scenes of the Deathly Hollows part one, um, 
it's a moment that's not really seen that much because it was deleted, because it was deemed unimportant by the, the filmmakers. Um, but this is the moment where Dudley tells Harry that he's not a waste of space, which is Dudley speak for, I love you. Thank you for saving my life. Yeah, that's the closest <laughs> he's going to get to ever saying that. Exactly. Um, and, and I think that, uh, well, I know that Rowling went on in the, uh, the Cursed Child to say that Harry and Dudley, although never friends, stayed in touch the rest of their lives. Yeah. Some holidays together. Yeah, they did. And, and Dudley even sent Harry um, the cloth that he was wrapped in as a baby. So it was the yeah. only thing that he had left from his mother yeah. uh, in the Cursed Child. So, you know, that this is the reason that I chose this topic, um, because even to redeem a small part, these overly maligned characters from Harry Potter, it makes me feel as if everyone can relate because we all know people like this in our lives. And, you know, to think that these characters are redeemable, even in a small way, makes me feel a little bit better that everyone can be redeemable, especially in light of current events. <laughs> yeah, um, it certainly is uh, applicable to the real world. Um, can the changes in any of these characters be attributable to other things? I mean, is Creature, is his change just because somebody's finally done something nice for him and he's never been treated that way before? I mean, can we find other, um, rationale for why these characters change or, or is it pretty convincing argument that it's the horcrux being removed well i mean there are times when hermione is always nice to creature and yet he treats her like garbage because she's mudblood and he's been trained to mm -hmm. treat them like garbage um and so there are there are there is evidence within the books that these changes are attributable to the lack of, of Horcrux in their life after such long exposure. Uh, another thing that your rereading brings up is if these people are so um, affected by being in the proximity of a Horcrux all these years, they're, they're nasty, they're mopey, um, it gives you new respect for Harry having that inside him for 17 years. Yeah, he's and, able to um, he's able to keep the laughter and the the you know the the hope despite the fact that he's treated horribly by his only living relatives. Um, he is able to think about having a future without them. He's able to find it humorous that Dudley is on a diet rather than just being angry all the time. So he, he's got a lot of resilience. And uh, uh, he's very kind. I mean, in the very first book, he's kind to Neville, even though Neville narks on them. And he's kind to um, Dobby. And mm -hmm. that's that re your theory of rereading um, gives you so much more respect for the heroic of just Harry being a nice person. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely speaks to nature versus nurture. I mean, his, his nature comes from his parents 
and they were good people and they loved him and they loved each other and they loved their friends. And yet he was raised in this horrible house, with these horrible people. And he is still able to be nice to people. He is still able to have those moments of kindness, even towards his terrible relatives. You know, he saves Dudley's life. He doesn't want him to die. Here's a really good question for you from Alexis. Okay. Why do you think Hermione and Ron weren't affected more being around Harry so much during school? They argue, but all friends do. Ron, though, seems to have jealousy issues a lot more. Hermione gets mad at the boys, but she's always there when Harry needs her, even when she's angry. Can you offer a point of view on this? Absolutely. I talk about this in my paper. Um, so I think that Harry um, does affect people, but it's based on how he is feeling. And when he's at Hogwarts, he's infinitely happier than he ever was when he was at the Dursleys. And so his attitude is always more positive for the most part, for the first four years at least. Uh, <laughs> and then, um, so his impact on on Hermione, who is very logical and is not driven by her emotions, is not gonna be affected as much um, by his mood swings because he only t tends to affect people being the only human living Horcrux um, differently than the other Horcruxes do. He affects them through his own emotions. So if he is happy, then his Horcruxes is, is, the effect is lessened. If he is unhappy, then the effect is, is pushed out towards others around him. So Ron is absolutely, he gets the butt of, of, or the brunt of every argument that they have. Every argument that they have is about Ron's jealousy. It's about Ron's anger. It's about, you know, how Ron is feeling. And when Ron attacks Harry, Harry attacks back. And so you can see how when they argue, it's all about how they're feeling towards each other or how they're feeling inside. And so Ron is definitely the most affected by Harry, but you know, they're best friends. And so for the most part, they have a good time together and they're able to forgive each other. And that's, that's the biggest part of it is it pulls back from the Horcrux when they're able to forgive each other. As you were talking, I was also thinking of his roommates who he spends a lot of time with. I mean, at least eight hours a night with Dean and Seamus. And, and they certainly have their problems with Harry throughout the series. Neville seems to be someone who also is not affected really by the right. Um, and I think that Neville in particular is different because he, like Harry, has had a lot of tragedy in his life. And so he has learned how to deal with his emotions internally. And so he is able to process his negative emotions and turn them into either a decisive action or um, unfortunately self-flatulation. He's, uh, he's really hard on himself. Flagellation. <laughs> self-flagellation <laughs> is something else. <laughs> I have a, a comment from Sharon, a question from Sharon. 
I have to admit that I'm feeling super conflicted thinking that Harry's Horcrux status influenced those around him with the same malevolence as the other Horcruxes. It makes logical sense, but it's a little disturbing. How have others reacted to your thesis? Um, so far, it's all been positive. Um, I haven't had anyone particularly who disagreed with me, um, but we'll see. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, this is your big unveiling. Exactly. Yes. So anybody that wants to type in their their questions or comments, now is a good time for that as well. Um, I've got your finished slide, but I put in an extra slide in your show. I know. So you happen to also be <laughs> a fiction author. And just yesterday, your second short story was published. So congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> Can yeah. you tell us a little bit about your, your side as a fiction author and maybe how your research kind of helped you with that as well? Absolutely. Um, so I've written two short stories that have appeared in these, um, these anthologies. And uh, I think that the reason that I started school at Signum was because I wanted to be able to better figure out how to write for myself. Um, I wanted to be a novelist and this is, you know, my beginning is finishing my, my master's degree and going after what I want. And so now I have these two published short stories. Uh, one of them is a fantasy, um, and the other one is a horror story. So very nice. And these are available through Amazon and all good retailers of books. All right, I have a couple more questions and then we'll bring Emily and Dr. Skackel back. Um, okay. from, from Alexis, she says, so Harry's natural goodness balances out the evil of the Horcrux. Harry is the only known living Horcrux other than Nagini. But once yeah. Voldemort begins his return, it affects Harry much more. Is the strength of the will then, that can, is it the strength of the will that can rival a Horcrux? I think for Harry, absolutely. Um, I think that uh, Harry and his determination to, to defeat the Dark Lord, even from the beginning, even from his first year, when he finds out that he can, when he touches Quirrell, he can, you know, hurt the Dark Lord. Uh, that's, that's the moment when he fights. He begins to fight. And he never stops fighting, really, uh, from the beginning all the way through the end. And so his his will and his determination make a huge difference in the impact that his Horcrux has on others, as well as when Voldemort is close to him, how that affects him as well. He uses it rather as um, a strength than as a weakness. Very good. And here's a related question from Kateri. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. So in the Order of the Phoenix, when Harry is cranky and moody, is that the Horcrux taking over in a bigger way or just teenage hormones? Uh, I think it's a combination of both. I think that because of his hormones and also because of the tragedy that he has just witnessed, he's, um, or that he will, that he is witnessing, um, and because the entire school turns against him. You know, if, if your entire school started to turn against you, 
he'd be angsty too. Um, but because of his horcrux and because of his bad mood, it affects people more deeply. And you see it, especially in Seamus that year. Um, mm, and, mm -hmm. and, and, and in Ron. So I think yeah. that. Is that the year that Dean and Jenny are fighting all the time? Uh, I think that's the next year. Okay. Anyway. Well, that is, uh, you know, you really made me look at Harry Potter differently and I've read the whole series several times and uh, didn't, didn't see it in that light. And now I'm going to go back and read it again with, with my new rereading goggles on. So thank you for that. Good. I'm glad. All right, I'm gonna bring back Emily and Dr. Skackle. You guys can um, turn on your microphones and your webcams just by clicking on the uh, microphone and webcam icons. There's Emily. We'll see if we can get Dr. Skackle to just uh, find the green circles on the GoToWebinar panel and see if you can click on the microphone and the webcam. So let me ask you guys while we're waiting for him to come back, um, what next? So Emily, what's next for you? Hey, there's Dr. Skackle. No, you had it. You had it. Click the green button again. There, there we perfect. go. So Emily, what's next for you? Um, honestly, I don't know yet. Um, going to finish up the school year and um, probably just take some time to maybe pursue some other um, topics I'm interested in, but I don't know yet. I'm just kind of excited to see what will happen next. Be a new adventure, whatever it is. Are you going to do anything with your thesis? Any plans to maybe publish it as an article or mm -hmm. a book, book chapter? Yeah, I would like to publish it as an article. I'd also um, like to take a look at um, ideas of like theodicy and good and evil in the works of C.S. Lewis, but probably more informally and just more for my own pleasure. That's awesome. Very good. And Lola, what's next for you? Um, well, I'm just, you know, living life, have a day job. And so <laughs> it's always very full. Um, but like Emily, I would like to, to see if I can publish my thesis other places and um, maybe go to conferences and, and speak about it. Um, you know, just to get the idea out there because Yeah. I went to one conference uh, in Albuquerque a couple years ago and there was a, a young undergrad who had the idea that Petunia was actually a hero for saving Harry and the whole room turned against this poor young man and almost ate him for lunch. So I think you're gonna have to have some armor on. Yeah, well that's how I felt the Dursleys. Yeah. When I was defending the Dursleys, I felt very attacked. <laughs> But, you know, I got thick skin. I can do it. Well, yes. Now, you said to me that you thought you'd have a lot of extra time now that you were done writing your thesis. How's that working out for you? Not so much. <laughs> you know, all the, all the time that I was using on that has just been shifted to other, other projects, all the things that I was pushing off until yeah. I finished my thesis, and now I'm just stuck with that. Right. It always comes back. Dr. Scapple, was this your first um, encounter with Signum University? Oh, sorry, I can't hear you. I can now hear you. Go ahead. Nope, 
Click your microphone one more time. There you go. Now. Perfect. My yes, this is my first uh, first interaction with Signum, and I've enjoyed it very much. Seems you're doing some wonderful things. Well, it's really an honor to have uh, esteemed scholars like yourself join us, and it seems that you and Emily were a very good fit together. Did you know one another before you started the thesis process? No. no. Nope. I just. But knew. I agree. We worked. We we had a very good working relationship. I learned yeah. a lot from her, and I hope she earned a little bit from me. Oh. Yeah, I did. Um, I actually uh, learned about Dr. Skakel from his book, Reason and Imagination and the works of C.S. Lewis. I used it as a source for a paper in my Lewis and Tolkien course. How exciting. Great, great to yeah. hear. Yeah, okay. it was great. That, that wow. is, that's wonderful. You had never said that before. Mm -hmm. Great. That's, that's really neat. Um, I had a similar thing happen. Um, I was familiar with the works of Dr. Flieger, and then she came on board to do some classes for Signum, which I signed up for immediately. And um, I was lucky enough to have her as my advisor. So Signum really does put us right in the pool okay. with the big fish, which is wonderful. Mm. Well, uh, that about wraps it up for us. I am just gonna look at the questions box one more time. Oh, yeah, thanks, Alexis. Thank you for... Um, Reminding me of that, for current Signum students, you can read these theses in the digital library. Um, you do have to have a current student email address. If you're not a current the Signum student, why aren't you a current Signum student? But if you aren't a current Signum student, you can at least read the abstracts um, freely available at the Signum website uh, in the digital library. And if you contact the authors directly, you can negotiate whether they're willing to share anything. Sometimes they can't because they're in publication hands and then the publishers end up having some rights there, but you can certainly email them and ask. Let's see what else we have. And thank you, Emily and Lola, for such great views. Alexis is looking forward to reading that. And you can become a student simply by doing an anytime audit. Thank you, Sharon. So if you do an anytime audit, which means you don't have to write the papers, you don't have to take any oral exams, you don't have to go to preceptor sessions, but you get to watch all of the wonderful lectures and read all of the uh, exciting readings. You can have um, access to the theses in the Signum Digital Library. Wonderful. Well, I hope that I read a lot more um, from all of you and I hope you guys will join us again. Remember the Signum fundraiser is currently going on. It's the one time a year that we, um, come to you for support and that funds us for the rest of the year for all sorts of things like the thesis theater and um, the all the Mythgard events um, and Dr. Olson's annual run through Lotro, which is tomorrow <laughs> at noon Eastern time. Thank you, Lola. Thank you, Emily. And thank you, Peter. It's been a pleasure. And thank you all for coming. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night.